Well, it's good to have you all here today. I want to invite everybody to check it in on YouTube also and uh, all the teams that are out there. And We appreciate you being here today. And as you know, we have been inching our way, basically, through Proverbs chapter 31. I, I have told you that I do not want to uh, rush through this. And the sermons, you know, I've had several people say, well, your sermons are shorter. Well, they may be shorter, but they're, they're more in-depth. And I told you that when we started this chapter. I wasn't so much interested in, in uh, how much volume material. I mean, I could do three or four verses at a time, but I wouldn't do it justice. And that's not what I'm looking for here. I'm looking for when you leave, if it's 30 minutes, 20 minutes, 40 minutes, or an hour, I'm looking for you to get uh, what you need uh, that's going to, uh, to give you out of this great chapter what it's dealing with. So <clears throat> that's, you know, that's what I'm looking at. I don't know any place in the Bible that is a better reality check uh, for all of us than Proverbs chapter 31. And most of the time, honestly, the guys that I've heard preach it, you know, they just kind of blitz through it and blow over it and hit some really maybe good points. But, boy, uh, you know, if there's ever a time that God's people needed to stop and reconsider where they're at and, re and just get a reality check of, of what's going on, uh, it's it's the day and age that we live in. And I know for us in our church here, there is no greater place anywhere uh, in the Bible than Proverbs chapter 31 to do that. And, uh, you know, last week we looked at verse 11, and uh, we talked about four key words. And uh, we're adding our key words, and I told you that the whole chapter is built around key words. And, uh, you know, so we're kind of keeping a collection of them as we go through here. Uh, and we've seen how that these key words really open up the chapter for us and give us everything that we really need. Uh, so we looked at the word heart. Uh, we looked at the word trust last week. We looked at the word safely. And we looked at the word to spoil. And each one of those words brought with it an incredible concept that we needed to see and understand uh, as we put the whole chapter together. Obviously, you know, the, uh, the attitude of heart that we have toward God, that we love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy mind, and all thy soul. The word trust, we normally think about us being able to trust him. What we learned last week, that's not the way he uses the word trust. It's can he really trust us uh, with the ministry and what he has for us. And then we looked at the word safely and simply, uh, does God uh, feel safe with the, his work in our hands? Uh, I mean, he looks at it, he looks at it as individually, every one of you, but he also looks at it as a corporate church here, our body, this church. Does he feel safe with what we have that we're going to do, you know, what's right? And of course, the fourth word was the word spoil. And we learned that that is to... Know, spoil the work of God that God has for us. And how each one of these form, like I said, a key quality that we should be building into our own lives and our relationship with Him. You know, as for us as individuals and to Christ as our relationship, you know, to be that virtuous woman that is the theme of Proverbs chapter 31. And boy, uh, what a great picture that is. You know, and for us, it's as his, his bride. In Ephesians chapter 5, he likens the, he likens the marriage uh, in a physical sense to our relationship with Christ in a spiritual sense. 
And he talks about husbands loving your wives even as Christ loved the church. And he says, you know, that he talks about the, 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 refer, the, the relationship between Christ and the church and how that that's a picture of what we should have with him. And it's an incredible model, not only for marriage, but it's a credible model for our own relationship with him. And then we've seen many, many times how in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23, that he talks about the church being a chaste virgin. And in that chapter, Paul is worried that the devil who transforms himself into an angel of life is going to destroy the church or destroy in the church the simplicity. And boy, that's exactly what he's done. And, and it's really the key why all of Christianity today has lost the reality of Christianity from the Bible standpoint. Because the only way you get the reality of everything about God in your life and what he's doing is to stay in the simplistic aspect of the Bible. The moment you add education to it, the moment you add Greek and Hebrew to it, the moment you add seminaries and Bible colleges and everything to it, all that simplicity goes out the window, and this is why we find ourselves in the situation that we're in. We talked about that yesterday in the book of Hebrews as we're coming through Bible Institute. Wow, what a great book that has been up to this point. And all of this that we're looking at will be built around, and you want to remember this, and I'll remind you every week, is built around one key verse. And it's the one single verse that we never want to forget, and everything that we're looking at comes back to, and that's the verse in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, that he hath begun a good work in us and will perform it under the day of Jesus Christ. The day we got saved, God begins that good work, and uh, he's going to perform it up to the day of Jesus Christ, and of course, we know that to be the rapture of the church. Now, last week, we my plan was to get through two verses, but we didn't. We just got through one, and that's okay because it was, a, it was a great, uh, some great concepts in it. But today, we're going to do our best to move through the next two verses here, 12 and 13, because they, they kind of go together. And uh, it says, um, she will do him good all, and not evil all the days of his life. She seeketh wool and flax and worketh willingly uh, with her hands. Doc, would you, Rob, would you stand up and ask God's blessing? Good to have you guys down here from Lincoln today. Would you ask God's blessing on the service this morning? Thank you, Doc. Now, verse 12 says, and this is where we want to start for a moment here, she will do him good and not evil all the days of her life. Now, the her here obviously is the virtuous woman, and it's a reference to us as the church. And, you know, it's a reference to you and me, this church, getting to the place in our lives through the biblical process of getting God's understanding. And we learned last week that we get there through a transformation, God transforming us, bringing us from who we are to what God wants us to be. And at that point, as you go through that, at some point in your life, you're going to now be, you're going to now get understanding. And understanding, as we well know, is the ability to see anything in life 
and understand God's hand in it. And look at your own life. Understanding would be the reality check that I'm saying that we're all missing today for the most part in Bible Christianity is to be able to understand all things. And it's a thing where you, you, you look at life, you look at your situations in life, you look at your own self in life, your family in life, you look at everything that is around you and suddenly you see it now from a totally different standpoint. You don't see it from what you want to get out of it. You see it for what God wants to get out of it through you. You know, and it starts with, we've talked about this as we've come through. It starts with understanding God's will versus God's plan in your life. That is the number one issue that will stop somebody dead in their tracks if they think God's plan and God's will is the same thing. And most of God's people do. And reality now we have defined that, that God's plan, obviously God has something that he wants each of you to do. And it'll be different for each one of you. That's God's plan. But God's will for us is the same for everybody, and that is that you and I, through that transformation process, become more like Christ every day to attain that understanding, get that virtue in us that God wants us to, to uh, give to others. And, uh, you know, one has to do with what God wants you to do. The other one has to do with what God wants you to be. And uh, understanding then the trust factor. Can God really trust us? When God looks at our church, does he safely trust in us that we're going to do what we're supposed to do as far as the Bible's concerned? And then that filters down and breaks down to each one of us today. Because this church will only be as strong as its weakest link. This church will only be as strong as the people in it, the family units in it. And uh, so when he looks at us, he sees more than just a bunch of people here today. He looks at it through the understanding of God that he knows that any church will only be as strong as the families and as the individuals. And can he trust us with that? I mean, it's just that simple. Understanding the aspect of us being a living sacrifice. Each week we're going to see a little bit more on these things to help put the whole picture together. You know, and there's some things today that I think that will really help you understand that concept of a living sacrifice. God's people today get saved. They take God's salvation. That's the end of it. They don't want to ever, they don't want to ever want to give anything back to him who's given everything to us for the most part. And of course, understanding helps us to realize that God has a job for us. And of course, understanding why God saved us, our real purpose in life. I hope you don't think that the job that you have or the career that you're pursuing or maybe you're in, I hope you don't stop and think that that's God's purpose for your life. You know, I, I, you know we look at things that we get or things that we do in life and we, we get lost because we lose the reality. And we think this is what God saved me for. God saved me to do this. No, 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 no. God saved you for his purpose and his good work Whatever vocation you're in is just your means of support, your missionary endeavor to be what God wants you to be wherever he has you go. And uh, when we do these things, then verse 12 says, we will do him good and not evil all the days of our life. Doing God good and not evil. Let's talk about that for a moment. Good versus evil. 
I mean, that's an easy concept in the Bible. You don't read three verses in Genesis 1 that you find the real issue in life is going to be light versus darkness. The light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. The whole Bible is built around good versus evil. Why, even an unsaved man will get up and he'll say, you know, in the, the world is about good and evil. Now, they, they misplace the good. They think the good is the Republicans and the evil is the Democrats, and the Democrats think that they're the good, and the Republicans, when they miss the boat, both of them are evil and none of them good. But that's the way it looks at it today. Now, it says to do him good. Now, let me just say this to you. Here's another, here's another key word. The only good in the Bible and the only good in life will be the Lord Jesus Christ. And the quicker God's people learn that, you know, the better off you're going to be. Proverbs chapter 25, verse 7 says, Remember thou me for thy goodness' sake. And of course, uh, that remember thou me is reference to Christ remembering us, the Lord Jesus Christ. You're going to find in Psalms 25, verse 8, that good and upright is the Lord. You're going to find in Psalms 54, 6, I will praise thy name, O Lord, for it is good. Romans 2, 4 says that uh, the, the riches of his goodness. And 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 11 says, all of the good pleasure of his goodness and the work of his faith and power. And it, it shows you that when we talk about God's goodness, we're talking about Jesus Christ. There is no goodness in this world other than Christ. There is no goodness in any of us other than if you're saved this morning and you have the Lord Jesus Christ inside you. We'd make the expression, my goodness. That's a reference if you're saved to Jesus Christ living inside you. And uh, we get the idea, because we lose touch with reality, that there's goodness out there in the world. Now, I'm not saying that everything in the world is bad. I'm not saying that. I mean, somebody said, did you have a good day today? And you say, yeah, I did. Now, you could answer that in affirmative, whether you're lost or you're saved, if things went good for you. So that's a worldly understanding. But from the Bible standpoint, as an unsaved man, you may think you had a good day, but you did not have a good day because any time during that moment you died, you'd be in the lake of fire. So it's really not a good day. It's a good day as far as the world sees it, but not as far as the Bible sees it. And we as God's people care nothing about how the world sees it. And of course, as we grow up into Him, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15, and then we become filled through the renewing of your mind, Proverbs, uh, Romans 12, 2, daily, then we, uh, we get filled with the Spirit of God, and then we minister to others, and by doing that, we allow the good work. He hath begun a good work in us. That good work is because of the goodness that God has put inside you the day you got saved, the Lord Jesus Christ. And outside of that, there's no goodness in any of us. Now, I know that unsaved people do good things as far as the world's concerned, but you know what? It ain't going to cut any slack with God. You're going to wind up in a lake of fire just like a guy who never did anything for anybody. Because the only, and you got to get it, the only true goodness in this world will be the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know, it's simply finding out what God wants you and I to do for Him in our lives, and then what? Spending the rest of our life and our time on earth doing it. 
And again, we defined this last week, the aspect of ministry will simply be building the quality, character qualities of Christ in our life. The Bible calls them virtue. And we build those things in our lives. And then through the good work, through the goodness that's in us, we give it out to others. And I showed you last week that I told you that every time that the Lord Jesus Christ in the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, wherever he showed up, people did not stay dead and they did not stay sick with infirmities. He brought them back to life and he healed them. And I told you last week, the job of you and me through the ministry of healing people, through the virtue that Christ has, is to give life back to dead people, unsaved people, or to heal people who are struggling through the things in life. Then he says, again, verse 12, to do him good and not evil all the days of our lives. We as the church today have such a foreign understanding of God and the Bible and any kind of relationship. And I, and I, I, I choose my words very carefully with that, and I hesitate even saying it, even though I'm going to say it. I'm not hesitating because I'm not going to say it. I'm just trying to say it the right way because that concept is so foreign to most God's people. Most churches today, um, they, they think that everything's just fine between them and God. They have no Bible. Uh, they brought the world into it. They've lost all the great doctrines that are the number one thing the Bible's profitable for. And along with losing all that, they've lost their reality. And they're sitting in churches today God's people, many of them, most of them probably saved. And they, they have no idea. And it's really hard for most of God's people who, who go to church every Sunday. Churches today are filled with them. They don't drink too much. They don't drink. They live as good a moral lives as you could ask for. They do drive buses, sing in the choir. They work in the food pantry. They, they do all things, uh, the, all the churchy things, you know. And yet the idea of me standing up here and even remotely suggesting that in all that you're doing, you're doing God evil will be so foreign and so catastrophic in its thinking that they could never get to that point. And, uh, you know, it's a thing where uh, the average megachurch today, that's just about where they're all at. And Baptist churches, the neo-evangelical crowd, all of them, they're filled with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of good people who were saved. And yet, they're absolutely worthless. Because we think that doing God evil, and it's true, we think the idea of you doing evil will, will be, you know, a worldly Christian who does all the things uh, the world uh, and, uh, you know, that the world does. And we, we think that that would be a Christian who doesn't go to church, who ought to be in church today, but they're down at the lake someplace or they're out there and they don't care about the things of God, yet they're saved. We look and we're so lost our perspective that we think that those are the ones who do God evil, but because we come to church, because we have the right Bible or carry a Bible, or we sing loud, 
or we tithe, or we, we show up to church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. We actually have, we just cannot get to the point and grasp the great truth that somebody like that could be doing God evil. It's one of the most amazing concepts that proves to me how far we are from the Word of God. And I would keep your thoughts to yourself this morning because somebody, and I don't mean this in a bad way, but somebody arguing that point or disagreeing that point just proves the point how far you are out there. Because I'm going to show you just a second. You know, I grew up in mainstream Baptist churches. And, uh, you know, over the years, most churches that I have been associated with, uh, they'll have they'll have two rules that they call for attendance. They'll have an, uh, an active role, that's people that come to church every Sunday, and then they'll have an inactive role, that's people who used to go there that don't go there anymore. And they, they will, you know, they, they'll, they'll, they'll maintain that. When a person comes, gets in the church and starts coming regularly, then they go on the active role. <clears throat> when they quit coming anymore, then they move them to the inactive role. Now, I've never understood that, but there's a lot of things about that I understand. You notice that we don't give invitations for you to come down and join the church here? Uh, I've been in churches all my life, and I thought how foolish that really is. You know, it's not the point, and I've had people all the time, they come here, they like it here, and they'll call me on the phone and say, hey, Bob, how do you join this church? And I say, I think you probably already have. How ludicrous it is to think that you coming down and saying, I want to join this church, and then six weeks later never come back again. You know when you decide you remember this church? When you decide this is your church. And I can't decide that for you. You have to look at it all in its entirety, look at what we have, look at the preaching, look at the, what, all that we do, and you have to say, I want this for myself and I want this for my family. Joining a church is not about me putting your name down on a piece of paper. It's about your commitment to a structure that God has ordained to carry out His good work. See how simple I make things? In most churches, you have an active and you have an inactive role. I've never done that. I have a, I, but I do have an active or an inactive role, so don't misunderstand me. It's just not the same way. My active role is people that are involved with me in ministry in this church. That's my active role. My interactive role is people that come to this church every Sunday, every Thursday night, but never get involved in ministry. They're inactive. And you're going to see as you come down through this, that we think of worldly Christianity as being evil with God. But the concept is so simple. Maybe that's the problem. Maybe it's too simple. You know, <clears throat> Bible says in Job chapter 40 and Job chapter 41, those two great chapters on the devil, over there around verse 12 or someplace it says, uh, God says, I will not conceal his parts, his power, his comely proportion. And then he says, who can discover the face of his garment? Talking about the devil. And obviously, uh, the devil wants to, you know, mask himself, so he takes the Bible from everybody, and therefore he can live within that absence of the Word of God that really defines him. That's why he hates the Word of God. But the devil's plan for mankind is very simple. 
He's got a two-point plan. One, he wants to keep everybody from ever trusting Christ as their own personal Savior. And he's pretty good at that. And uh, you know if you've done any personal work at all and you've worked with people in any way, shape, or form, you know that that is true. He's done a masterful job because a lot of people just don't want to get saved. But in spite of that, number one, people do get saved. All of you here are saved for the most part, probably. I'm sure you are. All of you, there's one back there I'm not sure of. But anyway, all of you are saved this morning. So it didn't work for you. Plan one got foiled for you. Now, here's how he looks at it. He doesn't want you to get saved. Plan one is to put everything in your life, every person, every girl, every guy, every job, every money, every car, everything in this world to keep you from trusting Christ. But if you do, nothing he can do about it. He can't get you unsaved, so he's got to put up with you being saved. So here's how he works. Here's plan two. He knows now that he's lost you to the eternal fires of damnation because you are going to heaven. But plan two is, if he now can keep you as a child of God who is going to heaven from impacting anybody else's life, he may lose you, but he'll gain through your lifetime how many other people that you would have had an influence for Christ, but you simply won't do it. So his plan is simple. One, try to keep you from getting saved. When he loses you, he understands that, so now he goes to work on keeping you from doing that good work. It's not hard to figure out. The lost opportunities. The lost opportunities in all of our life. You know, the judgment seat of Christ will just be a disaster enough, but to me, it'll be a real disaster if, if, if he never never says a word about anything that we did wrong, if he never beats us up, if he would just put on a movie screen from the time we got to the age of a time you got saved to the time the rapture came and you died, if he just puts up on the screen all the missed opportunities we had. Proverbs chapter 31, folks, is the great reality check of our Christian life. In a couple of weeks, in our chapter, we are going to, we are going to look at and see probably the greatest verse in all the Bible on understanding what the work of God should be in our lives. I, I, I don't know. It's one of the most incredible verses, one of the most eye-opening verses that I ever saw uh, in the Bible. And when I saw it some 30 years ago, it changed my life. It's one of those three, four things in your lifetime that you see in the Bible that just turns everything upside down. And it's one of the most incredible concepts that God's people never grasp. And it's, it, it's incredible. We're going to look at it in great detail in just a couple of weeks. You know, when you understand the book of Song of Solomon, which really deals with our relationship, and you understand the work that God saved you for, that we're to fulfill through that relationship to finish His work, and grasp, I mean really grasp, the concept of us being a living sacrifice. And you now begin to get to your Christian life. Will you really understand what that means? Uh, you'll see that all the sins of the flesh, all, all the sins of the flesh that we get into as God's people, they, they, they may be doing evil to the Lord. I get that. 
and that's true. But I got to tell you today, if you're a child of God and you're out there in the world and you're living like the world and you're doing all the things that, that the world does or, or whatever the case may be, those are only a symptom. They're wrong. It's sin and it does hurt and spoil the work of God. There's no question about that. I, I understand that. But I also want you to understand that that's not the real problem. That is only a symptom of a very deeper problem. The real evil we do to him is simply, for whatever reason, not to finish the work of God. And you and me getting saved and accepting his sacrifice for our salvation and then saying no thanks to the fact that he wants us to finish his work, which is a living sacrifice, that's what it's going to take, which he says in 12.2 Romans that it's our reasonable service. And we walk out there saved and on our way to heaven and we look at God in the face and we say, to me, that's unreasonable. Sorry. I've found in life that most people with issues in their lives, they, they don't want to really deal with the real problem. They want to treat the symptoms, but they don't really want to solve the problem. And of course, you know, when you see somebody out there that's in the world and doing the things of the world, you know, we think that that is the problem. But that's not the problem. I've dealt with a lot of kids and a lot of adults that, you know, that had alcohol issues or drug issues. You know, and the first thing, you know, the parent wants to do, you know, the kid gets busted or they got all these problems, you know, and they, they all want to go the Acer route. They always want to go to the world. And, you know, and they, the world, all the world will do, listen to me now, all, whatever problem you got, all the world will do is treat your symptoms. The world cannot, will not, does not have the ability to solve your real problem. And I've had parents, I've had people that said, well, you know, my dad's an alcoholic or my husband's a drug addict or this or that, and he needs to get help, and we're going to put him into a rehab someplace. And I don't, unless I'm, involved in it personally I just don't ever stick my two cents in but I think how absolutely stupid you are because here's the problem you are wasting your time listen to me you are wasting your time trying to rehab somebody's body till you rehab their heart because the body and the drugs is just the symptoms you know what the real problem is in here You'll send them to rehab after rehab after rehab. And when they go out, they'll go right back to the booze. They'll go right back to the drinking. They'll go right back to the world. You know why? Because that's just a symptom of the real problem. And the real problem, their heart needs to be rehabbed. And, and, and maybe someday, I don't know. I doubt it. And maybe someday God's people will learn the great truth out of Proverbs chapter 31, verses 12 and 13. And it talks about us doing him evil. And we get the reality check that we realize that that's just not talking about you can, that's just not talking about going out and living like the world as a Christian. That it's also talking about you being in church every Sunday, carrying the right Bible, singing in the choir, singing the songs, doing all the things. And someday maybe the greatest, you'll learn that the greatest sins that we commit against God are not the things that we do. 
because that's the general concept today. And I want to tell you today that God began a good work in you and he requires you, he thinks it's reasonable for you and I to fulfill and finish that good work. There's no discharge in this war. In a ministry, you don't retire. You get old to the place, you refire, but you never retire. You don't ever quit. There's no ending on the ministry. You do whatever you got to do in whatever situation you found yourself, in season or out of season. And the greatest sins that we commit against God are not the things that we do. And someday God's people are going to learn this great truth. The greatest sins that we commit against God are not the things that we do. Those are the things that we don't do. The sins of omission. The things that do evil to God and spoil His work is not what we do. It's what we don't do. We don't become that living sacrifice. We don't let God perfect that work in us. We get saved. We go to church. We find a big church that we can hide in. We find a big church where nobody knows if we're there or not. And then we just kind of go to church, sing the songs, talk about how much we love the Lord, and we become complacent. We become comfortable. We become lackadaisical. We become lethargic. We're Christians on Sunday, but we go right back to the world on Monday. We're like Solomon. When you go back and look, and here's the guy that was, was, was the king of Israel and his downfall. Everybody thinks his downfall started with the strange women. That was a symptom. Everybody thinks that it was because he loved gold or he loved all these women from all these other countries and he brought all their gods in. That was all true, but that was a symptom. Do you know where his problem started? His problem started in 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 38. When the Bible says that he built the house of God and he built the house of God in seven years. And then in the very next chapter, in, in 7-1, it tells us that when he built his own house, he took 13 years. You know what the problem was with him? He spent more time building the things in his own life than he did the things of God in his life. And whatever you wind up, whatever you do, you may be in church every Sunday and you're as complacent, and you're as lethargic, and you're as comfortable, and you're as critical, and you're, as, you're, you're, you're lackadaisical, and you're just like Solomon. You just sit back, let the world go by, enjoy your life, enjoy your family, enjoy your retirement, enjoy your times at the lake, and you never, never stop and consider that he died for you on that cross. He became your sacrifice for your sins, and now you and me need to be the sacrifice for him which is your reasonable service. And God's people today simply spoil God's purpose and God's plan for our lives. You know, at the crucifixion, the devil tried to do the exact same thing. Psalms uh, 35 is one of those great crucifixion passages back in the Old Testament. Incredible. And Jesus is speaking prophetically here on the cross, his thoughts while he's being crucified. And he says in Psalms 35, verse 12, they rewarded me evil for good to the spoiling of my soul. The devil came to him on the cross. The people that he came to, he came to on his own, but his own received him not. 
the nation of Israel that he came to to bring eternal life and give them the, the, the kingdom that they so desperately looked for and wanted. He brought them. Jesus is the only man who never hurt anybody or did anything wrong with anybody, yet nobody wants anything to do with him. And you know what the nation of Israel did? They did exactly what the devil wanted them to do. They rewarded him evil for his good. And the tragedy is today that we as God's people are doing the exact same thing. We get into church, we take God's salvation, and then we just chill out. We go when we want, we do what we want, we use our prayer life as an order catalog from God. The only time we get close to Him is when we get into a jam, just like Israel. We do our own thing the way we want to do it. We could give God not the time of day. It's hard to believe that we would allow the devil to use us the same way that he tried to use Israel with him on the cross. To spoil his soul. The very thought and idea as you and me or this church or any church playing church every Sunday, going through the motions, having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof, having a church service this morning to honor God when you got the devil's Bible. Are you kidding me? And yet if you'd walk up and down to those mega churches today, you'd see them sitting there so prim and proper. You'd see the ladies all dressed immaculately. You'd see the men sitting there and the pastor gets up there and whatever he does, you know, they're sitting there and they're paying attention. They've got their Bibles. They're nice, clean-cut people. They're people that you know, are in their 60s and their 70s and their 80s now and they're, they, you know, they're part of that generation that had some morality left and they're good people. They're in the 40s and the 50s and the 60s or they're in their 20s and their 30s and they're young couples and their young families and they're good people. They really are. but they do him evil all the days of their life because they're not willing to become that living sacrifice. They want the easy route. They don't want any accountability to anybody. They don't want any accountability in ministry. They've come complacent. They're satisfied in life. They're in the senior years of their life. They're going to take it easy now. Like a pastor said to me one time, he'd been in the ministry for 40, 50 not, not even 40, 50 years. He's probably been in 30, 40 years maybe. I bumped into him up at a restaurant here uh, last year sometime and hadn't seen him for a while. Knew him very well. I didn't know that he just told me that he retired. He says, yeah, he says, I gave it 35 years of my life. I want to tell you something. This guy in 35, if he gave it 35 years of his life, it was on another planet. This guy never built anything. But you see, you're getting in that mindset. You've been in the ministry now for 30. It doesn't matter what you did. You know why it doesn't matter what you did? Because you never looked at what you did as important to God and what God wanted you to do. So you look at yourself like you work at Ford or General Motors or wherever. And you hit that magical 65 or 70, whatever it is now, and then you just retire. And they look at the ministry just like they look at the corporate world. And they think now it's not what you did. It's not did you do anything. It's the fact that I paid my dues for X amount of years and now I'm going to go to the preacher dinosaur graveyard someplace. And this thing, well, now I'm going to play golf on every weekend. I'm going to enjoy my life now. Really? 
See, I, I don't know where I got this. It probably, I don't know. I thought that you didn't, you were going to enjoy it over there. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't play golf, Bubba. <laughs> Danny. Even though I hate golf, I mean, I think it's the most boring thing in the world. How you guys watch it on television? I mean, you know, I mean, and then a guy will hit the ball, you know, and it'll, it'll come close. To, and it, 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 the crowd has to be really quiet because you don't want to mess up their concentration. See, I would never work at that. I just wait till he got that. I say, hey, how you doing? You know, and ruin the whole thing. But anyway, it's a thing where, and then the ball gets close to that, you know, and everybody in the crowd goes, you can hear him. <sighs> you took a stick and you hit a little white ball. And it got close to the hole and you think, oh, are you kidding me? I'll tell you what. I can give you some things in the ministry that you have the right to go, ah, about. But that's the world, you see. Uh, and they think, that, they think that their time is up. They're done. And I'm going to tell you, when it comes to the ministry, he said, I will begin a good work in you and perform it not until the day you hit 70 or you retire, under the day of Jesus Christ. You know what a guy like that has done all of his life and is continuing to do now that he's in retirement? He does him evil. And he's a great guy. Nice guy. Doesn't drink, doesn't smoke, doesn't chew, and doesn't hang out with girls to do. I mean, he's a nice guy. But he does him evil every day of his life. Because the evil we do isn't about what we do, it's about what we don't do. The sin of omission. I preached a message uh, I, I preached a revival one time. I forget where I was now. I don't remember where I was, but I preached down there, and I preached for like five or six days. God gave us a great revival. And uh, at the end of the deal there, you know, people were broken, and they were, you know, getting right with God. It was a, it was a good time. And I, and I, and I, remember, I remember that this guy that was probably in his 60s or maybe 70s, uh, he came up to me, and he said, weep tears weeping running down his face. And he, he put his hands on my, grabbed my hand, and he just shook my hand, and he crying, and he says, he says, I want to thank you so much for being here this week. And he says, I only wish, I only wish I'd have heard this message 30 years ago. And I said, well, I appreciate that, brother. I really do. But let me ask you a question. I get that. But what are you going to do with it now that you have heard it? Or do you think you're past that point? You see, there's no end game to the Christian life. There's no, there's no exemption date that we're done now. There's no expiration date on you as a Christian. He began a good work in you, and he expects us through a living sacrifice, which is our reasonable service, to focus on not doing him evil but good. And you know what that good is? <coughs> that good is the good work that he started in you. I've seen God's people have been saved 10, 15, 16, 20 years. And you know what? They haven't moved any farther than the day they got saved. And yet they're in church every Sunday. If you ask them if they're saved and love the Lord, they'd say, oh, absolutely, yeah, absolutely. And yet, because of the reality they've lost, they have no clue that they do him evil every day of their life. Then look at verse 13 here. She seeketh wool and flax and worketh willingly with her hand. All right, now here come three more important words you want to get down. The first one is seeketh. The second one is willing. And the third one is hands. Three of the most important words 
on us doing the work of God and not doing him evil and spoiling his work. Now, the first thing we want to look at here, let's define this wool and flax. Get that out of the way. Now, wool comes from sheep. And that wool that the sheep gives up is used to make clothes. And you're going to find that clothing and making clothing is a very heavy part of this virtuous woman's job. We'll talk about that as we go through it. But wool comes from a sheep that will give up his wool so others can have clothes. In other words, the sheep will be, here it comes, a living sacrifice. He doesn't die to give up his sheep, his wool. He stays alive, but he yields his wool on a regular basis for others. And he's a living sacrifice. When you go back in Genesis chapter 3, you'll find that when Adam and Eve, before the fall, they were naked and they didn't need to be clothed. They were innocents. Once you, once you, once they got into sin, then they realized they were nakedness and they went to the fig tree and made them aprons of fig leaves, which forever has typified fig leaves and fig trees as self-righteousness. They tried to cover their nakedness with their own good works or self-righteousness. The Lord shows up and he says, that's not going to work. And in Genesis chapter 3, he tells that he makes them coats of skin. Obviously, write it down from a lamb. And that's such a powerful thing that over there in Isaiah chapter 61 verse 10, when it talks about salvation, he calls it the garments of salvation. And you and me, we as Christians doing the good work will do one of two things. You'll make clothes out of wool and flax that will become garments of salvation for lost people. But for the saved people that you're working with, Revelation chapter 19 verse 8, it'll be the white robes of righteousness. You see, my job here is to help you make your own clothes out the judgment seat of Christ. And then as you get involved in the work and do what God wants you to do, you help make clothes for others, either garments of salvation or the robes of righteousness. And for the life of me, I cannot understand why some of God's people just insist on staying naked. The flax... The flax is a plant. And what you did is you got this plant, whatever they did to it, they, but it made thread out of it so you can sew the clothes made from the wool together and make garments. Then these two represent our very work of God. I mean, it's just that simple. I mean, uh, you know, and, and, and I want you, you know, it's one of those things where, and I want you then to look at the next two key words. Once she has the wool and the flax, then she... She seeketh and she's willing. You know, the concept of seeking, it starts with God. If God didn't seek us out, we would never get saved. And the Bible tells us in Luke chapter 19, verse 10, that the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. And that's me and you. So this idea of you and me and seeking out the work doesn't start with me. It's one of the character qualities that gets in us through the virtue of Christ because that was his number one concept 
to seek and to save that which was lost. She does this out of the right heart attitude based on her relationship with God and the virtue that she has built inside her. This woman seeks out opportunities. And when she finds them, she is willing to do the work. She's not sitting in a church this morning complacent. She's not sitting in a church this morning and walking out and telling the pastor, what a great sermon that was, and do nothing with it. This woman never misses an opportunity. Most of God's people never miss an opportunity to miss an opportunity. This woman doesn't. She seeketh out opportunity, and when she finds it, she's willing to do the work. And as a child of God, you have to seek out and be willing to do what God wants us to do. I've been in the ministry a long time. And you meet all kinds of people. The majority of them are very good people. There are always bad people in everything. We know that. But, you know, even the people who don't do what's right, in most cases, they're nice people. I've known some of the nicest people I've ever met in my life that I love them, but they're worthless. I mean, but it doesn't go away that I care about them or I love them. I hope someday they'll get their you know, head straightened out and figure out where it's at. But you're going to meet people that come to church. And I understand this, so I'm not going to hit this one too hard. <clears throat> but they'll, they'll, they'll talk about it in the fact, well, you know, you know, nobody's friendly at that church. Nobody talks to me. I, I, I just don't fit in. Now, I'm going to give you this. That may be true at First Baptist of Raytown, and that may be a church in your mega, mega church or your neo-evangelical church where if you ain't in the upper bucks category, you don't mean anything to anybody. But I'm going to tell you right now, that is not true here. I've devised the greatest entry-level program that you could ever want to put you right in the middle of the action that God is doing here. It's by design. I mean, I have discipleship one and two. You know what happens to discipleship one and two? Well, you say you learn the basics of the Bible. That's true, but I could, that's not the most important thing to me. You'll learn the basics of the Bible if you just stick around here. What's important to me is the four goals that help establish you within the body of the believers because that's where you need to be. But you find people that don't want to be discipled. Our prayer groups. Bob does a great job of putting them together in the lessons, and you do a good job running them. But you know what? To me, the lessons are a means to an end. That's one of the greatest entry levels that if you're brand new in this church and you want to find out what's going on and who's who and get into the know people and become part of what we're doing here for God, that's how you do it. That's why I change it every 12 or 15 weeks so you don't become stagnant and just become a good old boys club or good old girls club or a good young girls club, for that matter, for some of you. No offense, ladies. But it's a thing where it, 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 it changes everything up. You take all the activities that we have. Now, I know we're under a little bit of a strain right now, but we have softball, and then we all go to Jason's Deli afterwards. We have volleyball, and then we all go to Jason's Deli afterwards, to the point we all get sick of going to Jason's Deli afterwards. 
And we have you guys do kickball and all the activities. We have Memorial Day picnic tomorrow. I know it's a little different than we normally do. I'm sorry. I'm doing the best I can with what I have. But all those are designed to help you feel part of what's going on. There's not a new person that walks into this church that I don't see it. Somebody's going up and talking to them, four or five, six people. I'm always telling them I'm glad they're here. I'll always go by and do that. You know why? Because we mean that. You know, I'm just going to say this, and again, I don't want to hit this hard, too hard, but the issue here is not us, it's you. You know what rule number one of life is? You only get out of something what you're willing to put into it. That's just the truth. You go to your job someplace and there's people around you and you never talk to them or never associate with them or you eat lunch all by yourself, you know, over here in the corner, you're going to have a tough time in that job. You know, it's a thing where in anything in life, and it's certainly true of church, certainly true of the ministry, you only get out of something what you're willing to put in. And I don't care about your, your job. I don't care about your work. But in a church, you want to ask yourself, why is that? And the Bible says in Proverbs 18, verse 21, he that hath friends, you want friends? You want to have friends? Who doesn't? I mean, get past your dog and your cat. You want to have friends? Do you? But nobody's friendly in that church. Okay. Well, nobody wants to be my friend. Nobody's talking. You want to have friends? Here it comes. Here it comes. You want to have friends? He that hath friends must show himself friendly. I mean, you, you, here you can bust into anything you want. You can, you, can, you, can, you can come into anything and do anything. It's like when, I, when the terrorists were taking over all the planes. When I was flying somewhere, I'd either wear dark fatigues or camouflage. And that way, if the terrorist ever started to take over, I'd come up and I'd say, hey, guys, we're waiting for you. What took you so long? <laughs> you got to get in it. You got to get in it. And, and I'm telling you right now, the real issue in most cases is developing a relationship with people in a church in time will make you be faced with a decision to get into ministry in that church. And the real issue in most cases, you really don't want to do the work. You like that complacency. You like that going to church. You love going to church. You just don't want to extend yourself. You love the concept of coming to church, but the idea of being a living sacrifice turns you off. I get it. Seeketh and willing. There's two great examples of this in the Bible, and I think they're a masterpiece. The first one is in Genesis <coughs> chapter 24. And in chapter 24, you've got the great story that Eleazar, who is, a, who is Abraham's steward, is going out to find a bride for Abraham's son, who we know as Isaac. And historically, it's a true story, and he travels out and and, you know, and finds Rebecca. And, uh, you know, she comes back and she marries him. And it's one of the greatest stories that you're ever going to find. Now, we have a book back there in the bookstore, and I've taught this many, many times, that in that story are found 19 absolute fundamental principles on finding a spouse. Go through these instead of ChristiansMingle.com or whatever the case may be. 
it's a thing where these are infallible. And you may go the other route and get lucky. Praise the Lord. I'm happy for you. But I'll tell you what, for everyone that finds somebody, uh, it becomes a remake of The Bride of Frankenstein, I guarantee you, from 1935. 19 principles. And in that, you find that this woman that he's looking for. Now, here's the picture. Inspirationally, Eleazar is a type of the Holy Spirit of God. In fact, he's not named in that passage. You've got to go someplace else to find out who it is because the Holy Spirit of God seeks not his own. And so it's Abraham, God the Father, sending out the Holy Spirit of God to find a bride for his son, Christ, typified by Isaac. And when you walk through that thing, he's looking for her. You know what the two things that he finds in her? The fact that she is willing and she's seeking. You know where he finds her? When he finally finds her, this would be a good place to start for everybody. He finds her at the well. That's a picture of the Word of God. I'm glad he didn't find her in a lake or a swamp or even a mud puddle because those are awful shallow. I like the idea that he found her in a well. Not he didn't find her in a well. Hey, Rebecca, throw your rope. Come on up. You can get married. He found her at the well. And, you know, and it's a thing where the first thing she does is want to give him a drink. Because he's been on the road and she can tell. She's got perception. And now, once she gives him a drink, the next thing she says, <coughs> on her own, <coughs> nobody asks her, I'll water your camels. And, of course, he said, well, if you do that, I won't be able to smoke them until they dry out. No, that's not. He said, I'll, I'll, I'll water your camels. And know what the Bible says? She made haste. Now, I don't know what you know about camels, but they are pretty obnoxious animals. And uh, they're worse than a jackass. And it's a thing where, it's a thing where, and I don't let the word jackass bother you, you know, it's, it's, it's an animal, okay? <laughs> you said you should have said you was donkey. Yeah, but anytime I get a chance to cuss in church and do it good, I'm going to do it the right way. So, they're the most obstinate animal, and you've got to really know how to work with them. And this woman gives the picture that she really is willing to do the hard tasks. You know, she could have just gave him water and said, be done with it. Here, I'll leave you the bucket. Water your own camels. But she didn't. He saw in her somebody that was willing not just to do what needed to be done, but to go over and above what needed to be done. She was willing she was willing. And it's one of those things where it's one of the most incredible pictures that you're going to find. She, she made haste. She, didn't, she, she did everything she was supposed to do, and she's never stopping. And then she says, hey, stay at our place tonight. This woman doesn't know the end of doing good. But that's the way we ought to be. You know, I don't know what they're going to put on your tombstone or my tombstone, but I would be satisfied if they just put one little phrase. He did not know the end of doing good. Because when he began a good work in you, he performed it on the day of Jesus Christ, and there's no retirement that takes it out, no quitting the ministry. There's no bailing out, there's no doing your own thing. That good work goes on right up to the day of the rapture of the church. And it's a good work because of the goodness that's in you, the Lord Jesus Christ. The second one is in Acts chapter 8. And in Acts chapter 8, it'll be the great story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. 
I, I think it's probably one of my favorite stories in the Bible. I've got a sermon on soul winning that I preach out of that that uh, it's one of my favorite sermons to preach. And here you find another man who, and this one's in the New Testament, but he is willing. He is so willing. You know, he's got a, he, both of these people are pictures of Christians who are obviously led by the Holy Spirit of God. Now we know that Philip, even more so than Rebecca back in the Old Testament, but obviously she's following God too. But Philip's in the church age. And, you know, he, he's had a great revival going on down in Samaria. Thousands of people are getting saved. And he's so in tune with the Spirit of God that God pulled him out. He's the lead evangelist. And God pulled him out of Samaria where hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people are coming to Christ and take him to the backside of the desert where there was one man who had a need. Now, I've known preachers that, and evangelists that wouldn't come and preach in your church if you couldn't guarantee them a couple thousand people because they thought their ministry was too valuable to waste it on anybody smaller than that. And the only people dumber than them and when it comes to the Bible in Acts chapter 8 are the people and the pastors who have them in to preach. What an arrogant attitude based on Acts chapter 8. Well, first of all, pal, I guarantee you Philip was a lot better preacher than you are and he was getting a lot more results and he didn't even quibble when God pulled him out of the great revival in Samaria to send him to one man. In fact, when he shows up, he sees this guy sitting on a chariot. The Bible says he runs. You know why? Because he was willing. He didn't look at the circumstances of why he was there. He didn't question the circumstances why he was there. When the Holy Spirit of God told him to go, he recognized the leading of the Holy Spirit of God and he went. It wasn't, well, Lord, are you sure you got the right guy? I got to preach tonight down here and there's 2,000 people coming and if you pull me out, I just don't know what will happen. No, no, no. You see, doing good all the days of your life is not just about doing the good work, but it's about doing whatever he asks you to do when he asks you to do it. Because you know that it's good. And at the end of the chapter, after he goes through there, and oh, it's a classic. I mean, the things that he says, the ask him, it's everything you need to know about winning somebody to Christ. And when it's all said and done and he baptized the guy, the Bible says the same spirit that brought him there now takes him out and he goes to Azotus and he's preaching there. You know what that tells me? I'm sorry about your retirement. I'm sorry about your quitting the ministry. Sorry about you getting out. You know what that tells me? He, God brought him, the Spirit of God brought him to one place, and the Spirit of God took him to another place. You know what that tells me? Our job is never done. God began a good work in us, and he's going to perform it on the day of Jesus Christ. It's just one experience, one adventure, one place from another. Listen, you have to seek the opportunities that God puts in your life, and then you need to be willing to do them. 
through your relationship with the Holy Spirit of God, like Philip and, of course, Rebecca in 24, with Eleazar being a type of the Holy Spirit of God, you have to see them. You have to recognize them. You have to understand them. And then you have to be willing to make haste to do His good work. But when it comes to the ministry, real ministry, the Bible, ministry, people, we will only get out of those three things what we are willing to put into them. Then verse 13, our next word, working willingly with our hands. Now the key word here will be hands. The hands will always resemble the work of the ministry, and you'll see that as we come on through here. Now, a great example of this would be Moses in Exodus chapter 4. I, I, you know, there's more about Moses in the Bible than any other man outside the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, more, more written about Moses. Moses is one of the key men in the Bible, and there's so many things. He's like Abraham. There's so many things. And I've always looked at it where Abraham and his life represents the process to build a relationship with God. And I've told you that before. But Moses, on the other hand, is the process of us having a ministry with God because he became the greatest leader that Israel ever had. And, and you know the story. And it's a beautiful picture that I see in almost every one of you at some point or the other. God had a job for Moses to do. And you know that Moses went through a process to accept that job and it wasn't just like God showed up and said, I want you to go deliver the children of Israel when he was on board because he saw the movie with Charlton Heston and knew how it was all going to come out. He struggled with it. And he struggled with the ministry and the work of God just like so many of God's people do. And that's why I never get hard on them. That's why I never get angry with them because I know the struggles are real. But I also know the answer is real. You know, when he goes before God and God says, look, I want you to go down to Pharaoh and you're going to go up there and you're going to tell him what I'm going to do if he don't let my people go. And he just, he just goes on and on and on. And, and Moses, is, Moses is terrified. I mean, he was okay to kill the Egyptian and bury him in the sand. But when he stood to taking a public stand against, you know, Pharaoh, uh, you know, which he, he, he didn't want to do it. And he's... You know, he's standing before God there, you know, and the burning bush is going on, and God says, come on, Moses, you got to get this. We're almost out of gas here. The bush is going to go out. You need to make this decision. And he's standing there, alibying around. This is, where the, this is where the term comes in that we like to use in life, beating around the bush. That's what Moses was doing. And he says, Lord, I can't do all those things. He says, who's going to listen to me? I'm a nobody. He said the exact same things that every one of us has thought. And you know what God's answer was to it? God didn't say, I'm going to come down and give you the power that you're going to wipe out and kill everybody. He didn't tell him that. Now, obviously, God did that, but God didn't start there. And God will never start with just giving you the voila that you need. You know what God, he, he's going on and he's, Moses is alibying why he can't do this and he can't do that. And God just stopped him and he says, Moses, you can do it. And he says, well, how am I going to do it? You know what Moses said, or God said? He says, Moses, what do you got in your hand? 
He says, well, I got a shepherd's stock stick here. And he says, you know what? I'll just use what you got in your hand. You know, that's where God started with Moses. And God did everything he did to deliver the nation of Israel by starting with just what he had in his hand. And I'm going to tell you right now, God's got a work for you and he's got a plan for you. And you may be sitting out there to say, afraid of it or afraid you can't do it or don't want to do it. But I want to tell you, when he starts with you, he'll start just like he does with Moses. What you got in your hand. Years ago, I had a guy who wound up being a missionary to Germany. And he was a good kid. And he came into the church and he got saved and, you know, he got discipled and everything. And I was running the camps back then, high school camps, and we had these dirt bikes. And, uh, you know, it was a thing where uh, we'd take him down there and, you know, how kids are with dirt bikes, they just tear them apart, you know. So we'd load them up on the trailer, they'd be all beat up when we come back, they'd hit trees, rocks, brick the fenders, everything on them, you know. And so he came to me one day and he says, Bobby, he says, he says, uh, he says, could I take those dirt bikes and fix them for you? And I said, well, 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 yeah, what do you mean? And he says, well, he says, I don't really know the Bible yet. He says, I really can't disciple anybody. But he says, I am a mechanic, and he says, I know how to work on bikes. And he said, I'll take them, and I'll fix them up every year after camp and make sure they're running. You know, that kid wound up being a missionary. But you know where it started? God says, what do you got in your hand, son? He said, a wrench. I got a wrench. Penny Hansinger's been with me for a thousand years. She doesn't look shit that old, but she is. And I kid her all the time about being my money, Penny, like on James Bond, you know. But, you know, Penny has been in my ministry forever. But you know what it started with her? It started with the fact that when we went to camp, her and her mom, Alice. I'm sorry? Sister, Alice. I said, what do you, God says, what do you got in your hand? They said, cooking utensils. That's where it started. I look at Sharon Gowans and, and Morgan, you know, this thing with the craft stuff, you know, with all the little, with all, all the people. And though both of them could teach the Bible, but here again, God says, guys, what do you got in your hands? Crafts. I look at Christine at camp. Katina could teach the Bible to anybody, but you know what she's got? She's got these little goofy things right here. <laughs> what do you got in your hand? I look at your husband, David, and Sam. They could both teach the Bible, involved in my ministry. But you know where it started with them? They're both really good carpenters. So they built the obstacle course. They would fix and build anything. Hey, my point is this. God wants you to do a work. And you don't have to be afraid not to be able to do it because God will just take what you already have in your hand. And God will use what you have. Moses' fear was that he wasn't able to do what God wanted him to do, and fear will always quench that. And you know what God said to him? God said, Moses, I don't care if you're not able. I just want to know, are you willing? Because if you're willing, Moses... I'm able. And ask the question today. God doesn't care if you're able. God wants you to be willing. God began a good work in you the day you got saved that he wants to perform it on the day of Jesus Christ. But there's a process that you get to that. It just doesn't happen because you're a nice person. 
And in this church, it's hard for you to sit around and just be lethargic and, and just and get comfortable because I won't allow you to do that. Holy Spirit of God, won't, my preaching style won't allow you to do that. That's why you come and then you leave. I get it. You say, well, I just don't like being here anymore. That's two of us. I don't like you being here anymore either. Good deal. Bible says in Psalms 18.34, he teacheth my hands to war so that a bow of steel is broken by mine arms. The process of God teaching your hands, our hands, to war. I thought about this this week. You know that when Christ was crucified, they put the nails through his hands and through his feet. The two parts of his anatomy that have to do with the work of God. Did you ever see that? His feet carried him and will carry you wherever God wants you to go. So Ephesians 5, 6.15 says that our feet is shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. His hands were Psalms 18.34, the work itself, that wool and the flax that he was willing to do. Both for him and for us, the two main parts of his body that represented where he went and what he did were nailed to a cross. To me, that's very instructive that for you and for me, my hands and my feet, your hands and your feet, today, right now, need to be nailed to that cross. When your hands and feet are nailed to that cross, you don't have a right to do whatever you want to do with your hands or your feet anymore. You've lost that option. Now they're nailed, but they're nailed to the cross. And if we would get our hands and our feet and our minds around the cross, what he did for you, the sacrifice, it'd be a lot easier for us to be the living sacrifice for him. Jesus Christ is God's right hand. He's his right arm. Psalm chapter 17, verse 7. Psalm 28, 21, 8. Psalm 48, 10, 45, 40, over 40 places in the Psalms it talks about Christ being his right hand and his right arm. And the world, they'll say, I really love that guy. Yeah, he's a great guy. Boy, he, he's a good guy. You know what? I'm going to tell you something. I'd cut off my right arm for that guy. You know, that's exactly what God did for you. His right arm was Jesus Christ, and he cut him off on the cross. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He cut him off for you and me. We say, he's my right-hand man. That's Christ to God. He's his right hand, sits on the right hand of God the Father. But it also should be me and you in Christ. Are we God's right-hand man? And God has put in any scenario and situation and know how we're going to react or respond. Or do you cut yourself off? Most of God's people don't want to be God's right hand, so they cut themselves off, so you know what that does? Talk about evil. That makes him the Antichrist in your mind because the Antichrist gets a bad right arm and he's left-handed. 
God forbid that I'd ever turn God into being left-handed because of me. Proverbs 31 will kill you. You know, I found in all my years, really, just two types of Christians. Those who are slow, lazy, totally undependable, careless, slothful, and have no interest in doing anything for God. It's all about them. And they may come to church all the time or don't come to church at all anymore. And, you know, it's a thing where <clears throat> then you'll have those who, like Genesis 24 and Acts 8, they make haste. I call them my fast Christians. They'll run after the things of God. They'll run after the Bible. They'll come into this church and they'll get saved and you can't, you can't get enough of it. You just keep wanting to get all you can get. You'll realize what you've found in the Word of God here and you just want everything you can get your hands on and there's no stopping you. And you've got the slow Christians over here that could care less and you've got you fast Christians over here that just make haste. I thought about that for a long time, years and years and years, and I, you know, I like acronyms. And, uh, you know, it's a thing where I thought to myself, fast Christians. The word fast, what are the four characteristics that I want in my fast Christians? I said fast, not fat. Just stay with me here. Fast, F, faithfulness. A, available. S, Spirit-led. T, totally teachable. That's what makes a make-haste Christian. Somebody that is faithful because they know they're a living sacrifice. Somebody is available because they seek and they're willing. Somebody that is Spirit-led because of the fact that they will listen to the leading of the Holy Spirit of God in their life and somebody that is totally teachable, that want to learn everything they can to be what everything God wants them to be. And, and, and that's what it takes to do His good work. That's what it takes to do Him good and not evil all the days of His life. Forget the drunken, forget the world. I'm talking about God's people who go to church every Sunday who have just forsaken the work for a lazy place and attitude. The good work that he started in you, doing him good and not evil. Our word so far, first couple of weeks, we saw the woman in strong drink, the advice from Solomon's mother. Then we talked about opening your mouth for the little guys and opening your mouth for the righteous judgments. We talked about virtue, the character qualities of Christ we see in others. We talked about the price the price. We talked about that price being far above rubies. You know, I was thinking that this week. A ruby is a precious gem, but that's not what God's looking for. God's looking for a pearl. And when he finds a pearl, he knows that person, is, that pearl is going to be everything to him. I always thought it was interesting that he says price far above rubies. Because when you're a pearl... 
God never has to worry like the old country western song. Oh, Ruby, don't take your love to town. It'll always stay with him. Far above rubies. The heart, the trust, the safely, the spoil. And now today, the good versus the evil, the seeketh, the willing, and the hands. Fast Christians who run the race of Philippians chapter 3, verse 14, and run the race that is set before them. And there's three aspects to that race. And I'll leave you with this. The first aspect to the race is a race against lost opportunities. For us, it's the church of the closed door versus the church of the open door, missing the opportunities. We're in a race to get every opportunity that God gives us in these last days. The second one, a race to do the work of God to finish His work in your life. Don't waste any more time. When you've wasted a lot of time, then learn how to redeem the time. And then last and probably most important, a race against time. We are the last workers of the last part of the church age that went in in the last part of the 1800s, and we are in the last few seconds of the 11th hour. And yet, with God's people, there is still no urgency. And as I said in the first time I took you to Matthew chapter 20, the question is not what time you went to work, but the question is clearly and simply this. Are you on the job? Doing the work with your hands willingly and doing Him good and not evil all the days of your life. Well, we're holed up there. And